Worth repeating is made possible by the 8020 Foundation. Welcome to the Worth Repeating Podcast. I'm Tori Poole. The stories in this episode were recorded live from the Idema and Emilio Nicolás Center at Texas Public Radio headquarters in downtown San Antonio. The theme for the evening was Bail, stories about needing to get away and doing so fast. When was the last time you had to bail? The first storyteller is Crystal Peter. Crystal shares a story about a family trip a broken mirror, and a need to get out of Mexico fast. Hey guys, so the story takes place about 22 years ago, early 2000s. I'm a young 16-year-old girl growing up in southwestern Minnesota. I know, how did I end up here? Um... (laughs) I'm the first generation of my family that came from Mexico. So we didn't have your normal vacations where, you know, it's Disneyland or the beach or whatever, right? So when my mom, and my mom was a single mom, so I'll give it up to all the hardworking single moms. When my mom would have um, vacation time, we would go to Mexico, San Luis Potosí to be specific. Usually it always ended up falling around like a quinceañera, a wedding, a baptism, something big that was gonna occur. So this year, we go, and my brother, let's see, I'm 16 at the time, my brother's about 24, and he brings along his girlfriend and his best friend. So it's a long drive, about two days to be specific, right? So we go, we're sharing our stories, whatever, right? We finally reach, we're in Mexico, again, I don't know, a quinceañera, a wedding, maybe everything, right? And we're wrapping up the end of the trip, and I just say, hey, let's go out, let's do something. Now mind you, if you've been to Mexico, you know that you can go to a bar and get served at any point as long as you can reach the bar counter and have money to pay for your drinks, right? So nobody wants to go, okay? My brother's friend Darren says, yeah, I'll go with you. Um, Well, my brother couldn't go because his girlfriend had gotten some really bad third-degree sunburn. She didn't realize that she had to put sunscreen on because the sun was more aggressive than what it is in southwestern Minnesota. So it'd be a dick move if he went out with us and left her to be alone. So Darren and I leave. Now, mind you, again, it's early 2000s. I'm 16. Darren's about mm, early 20s. Darren's about six, six foot two, tall, blonde hair, blue eyes, sticks out like a sore thumb. And again, early 2000s, we don't have cell phones because either we were too poor for them or they just, we just didn't have one for whatever reason. So we just rely on a taxi and asking, drop us off in an area of bars. Okay, cool. So we go, we're out bar hopping, having drinks, having a great old time, right? And Darren and I ended up, the last stop, going to this cantina. Now, San Luis Potosí Mind you, I'm, I grew up in southwestern Minnesota, a town of 10,000 people, three stoplights in town, y'all. We were the biggest town for about a 30-mile radius. So San Luis Potosí is nothing like that. We're talking about 2 million people, okay? So, yeah. Here we go into this cantina. It's like this, I don't know. You, you've seen buildings in Mexico if you've been, 
where they're made out of like cement instead of wood structures. And on the inside, it's really like kind of gothy-ish, like, like red and just not really welcoming vibes. But for whatever reason, it sounds like a good idea. Let's go. It serves drinks. So we go in there and we are having drinks and we're just having a good time. We're conversating. Darren excuses himself, says he has to go to the restroom. Okay, no big deal. Comes back out. Shortly after, someone from the bar, you know, just like this like stocky Hispanic man comes out and starts talking to me in Spanish. And luckily I speak fluent Spanish. Spanish is actually my first language. My mother always said it was important for us to learn where we came from. So he starts telling me how Darren broke this mirror in the bathroom and how we had to pay for it before we left. So I turn around and I translate to Darren. And I said, Darren, did you break the mirror in the bathroom? He goes, what is he talking about? That mirror was already broken. So I say, no, your mirror was already broken from what he says. They insist, no, you're going to pay for it. Well, I don't have like, you know, what, three, 400 bucks or whatever they're asking for to pay for this mirror. I just have enough to pay for our tab. So me, I'm like, you know what, close me out. It's been real. Let's go. So we leave and I'm thinking, lucky me, there's a taxi right here just when I need it. Again, there's no Uber, right? We don't have cell phones. So I give him the address where to drop us off. We get in the car and we go. We get home, whatever, go to bed, no one cares. Wake up the next day, we're venturing around. Again, we still have about maybe two, three days left in the city before we road trip back home to Minnesota. And while we're out, the folks that worked at the bar come to my mother's house and tell her, hey, um, you guys broke this mirror and you guys need to pay for it. If you guys don't pay for it, we're going to come back with the cops. Well, my mom knows that once you start giving money to somebody, they're going to keep coming back and they're going to keep coming back for whatever excuse. So she's like, absolutely not. They didn't break anything. We're not going to give you anything. They insist that they're going to bring the you know, law enforcement. And so, you know, Darren, not being from Mexico, not being from there, probably wouldn't be very good for him, right? So that night, my mother says, you guys are going back. We are going to send you guys on a bus ride to Laredo, Texas. And we're, like, they weren't going to like leave earlier. Like y'all goofed up. It wasn't on us. Y'all are leaving kind of deal. Like there was no buts, ands, or ifs. It was just pack your shit and go. Darren's like pissed about it. Like, you know, again, that proven, you know, innocent, innocent until proven guilty kind of attitude. And you know, that's not how it rolls in Mexico, buddy. So... My mom makes us pack our things. And here's the funny thing, right? My mom's more concerned about this like broken mirror than she is about sending her 16-year-old daughter with like some 20-some-year-old guy on a 12-hour bus ride and staying in some hotel for two, three days. Like, no, she's not worried about that. But then again, my mom's also been the kind of person to throw me on a plane at 12 years old to fly from Minnesota to Mexico by myself. So, okay. So here we go. We're kind of pissed about it, like, why? Why are we leaving? Like, this is so stupid. And we're just talking about this the entire 10, 12-hour bus ride. I really don't question my mom a whole lot. I've always been kind of like the bad child. But when my mom lays her foot down, I just bow and do as I'm told. And so she gives us money to go check in at a hotel in Laredo, Texas. And she says, once you reach there, call us and give us the details of the hotel where you're going to be staying. Okay, whatever, right? 
So we eventually make our way to the hotel. And again, we're just thinking, this is like bullshit. Like, why did you guys make us leave? And Darren, you know, once again, that attitude of I didn't do it. And, you know, their word against mine is like, no, that's not how it works, friend. And again, I'm not going to question my mom on her choices. I guess some vacations are too good to end early. Know someone with a great story? Tell them about Worth Repeating. Worth Repeating is currently accepting submissions for November's live event, Elevated. From higher knowledge to raised forms of consciousness, these stories are all about reaching new heights. Submit today by visiting tpr.org backslash WR. Our next storyteller is Patrick Gallagher. Patrick shares a story about his mother's innate ability to know when it's time to go. <clears throat> so I, I found that sometimes when I bail, I bail to get as far away as I possibly can. And sometimes I bail just to create enough distance to be able to see my way back. And that's what my mom and I did in the end of this long, hot summer of 1993. Uh, we had just sent my sister off to college in Penn State, three hours away in the mountains in the middle of nowhere. My parents had just recently separated. I had just finished seventh grade and was not looking forward to going back to eighth grade. And we were at this moment where we thought, we're alone in this house for the first time without the kind of family that we were used to. And we needed to get out. We needed to escape. And something that my mom has always been very good at is knowing when it's time to escape. She would let me stay home from school and watch Prices Right when I needed a day off. Sometimes we would just pack up a bag and get in the car and go down the shore and hang out on the beach for the day when we needed just to get away from home. And in this moment, we knew it was time to get away. We did have to kind of sheepishly ask my dad to borrow his car because my mom's car was not up to the trip, but we knew we wanted to go to the furthest away place that we could imagine. And our imagination in this case was, you know, somewhat materially constrained. So we decided we were going to go to Maine. And we had this old guidebook, the Explorer's Guide to Maine, that we dusted off and we decided we we're going to find a place to go in Maine. My dad willingly gave the car to us, and his car came, this was 1993, with turn-by-turn directions that were written on white-lined legal paper in bright blue ink in all capital letters with little (laughs) reference points to help us through. Perhaps because he didn't totally trust us to pull off this trip, but also out of a kind of paternal care. So we got in the car and we drove north for seven hours. And the first stop on this trip was in a town that was familiar. We stopped in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, not quite to Maine, a place that we had been to before as a family and felt like a good kind of starting off point for the trip. So we settled in there for the night. We had dinner in town at this restaurant. We were looking out over the Piscataqua River, the river that divided New Hampshire and Maine. And I was having clam chowder from a Red Bull, because I was going to do all the New England things while I was there. And um, and as we're sitting there looking out the river, this like dense fog starts settling in over the bridge and over the river. And it was like this wet blanket on our road trip enthusiasm. It was this like sense of gloomy doom 
but we thought we'll go on. We got up the next morning, the fog had lifted, and we thought we'd go over that bridge and head up to Maine. And we went north to this town of Gunkwit, which is like the kind of quintessential, charming New England town with white clapboard buildings and art galleries and a nice beach and a rocky shoreline. And we found an inn that we could stay at just outside of town that was pretty nice and pretty reasonably priced. And I remember my mom going back to Portsmouth to the bank to find money from an account to put the deposit down on the 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 hotel. It was this kind of sense when you're 13 years old. You don't know what's going on, but you know she's kind of working to make it happen. And she made it happen. We stayed there. We checked in. That afternoon, we walked into the town, and we found this old kind of market deli place and looked at the menu, and there was this thing on the menu, a lobster roll. Yeah. So it was 1993. There weren't, like, food trucks in San Antonio selling lobster rolls. It was <laughs> special. And we ordered two of them. They came wrapped in gray deli paper. And you know, by the time we brought the sandwiches back down to the front porch and these big Adirondack chairs to sit and eat them, it was already saturated with butter and oil and fat. And we opened them up and bit into this kind of lightly toasted New England hot dog roll the butters streaming down our face, the lobsters in our mouth, and we're thinking, whatever else happens, this was worth it, right? Um, but other things happen. In, in the course of the few days that we spent there, we kind of settled into this routine together. We'd wake up in the morning and take a walk along the marginal way, this kind of rocky pathway along the shore. And then we'd go hang out at the beach and read for a while. And then we'd climb back up the rocks and into town and go to that place and have a lobster roll every day. And we'd go back in the afternoon. We played tennis on this old tennis court at the end that nobody else seemed to play on. Neither of us really knew how to play tennis, but it was just a thing we did at the time to kind of spend time together. And then the evenings, we'd walk into town and hang out and have dinner and have ice cream. and. The final night that we were there, we followed that same routine, and we walked back into town, and we found this old movie house, and it was playing Forrest Gump, which is like the, all right, uh, the quintessential 1990s Bale movie, you know, run, Forrest, run. And like a lot of 90s pop culture, that movie didn't age particularly well, but this old movie house was aging beautifully. It had these great old solid wood auditorium chairs, and there's a snack stand in the lobby where we got a big bucket of bop popcorn in the striped bucket, and we had big icy cold sodas. And my mom cried during the whole movie, and I sort of laughed. And, and then we walked out, and the doors opened from this old movie house into the town, and it was one of those perfect late summer nights, right, where everybody's out in town. There are teenagers hanging out on the benches, talking. There's people coming out of restaurants and cafes. And we walked around, and we found on the edge of town this little piano bar. It was a bright yellow building with big windows that opened to the sidewalk. And there are a bunch of mostly older men gathered around this piano singing show tunes and standards. And my mom and I just kind of sat there listening and letting the light and the energy of that space kind of come out onto the sidewalk onto us. And in that moment, in this town really far away, my mom and I kind of felt at home together. So we had that night. We walked back to the inn. And in the morning, we woke up for the final day that we were going to be there. And we stopped for breakfast just before we crossed the border back to Maine. 
kind of pausing before we left this little world that we had created there. And at that cafe, like a lot of restaurants at the time, there'd be that big, there would be that big metal kind of uh, rack of, of real estate listings. And you'd open up this glossy magazine with all these houses in it, and you'd flip through, and there'd be weird you know, headshots of real estate agents. And, and we brought that over the table, and well, I brought it over to the table, and I started showing my mom these houses, mostly old houses with big front porches, classic New England houses. And I said, look, we could live here, and we could walk into town, or we could live here, and I could walk to the beach, and it would be perfect. And my mom was sort of smiling and, and nodding, sort of being polite, but definitely not in with my vision for the future. <laughs> And at the end of the breakfast, I, you know, I had closed up the magazine and we had paid the bill and my mom turned to me and she said, buddy, I, I, think, it's, I think it's time to go home. And she was right. She was good at knowing when it was time to escape, but she's also really good at knowing when it's time to come back, when it's time to go home. So we got in the car, got on 95 South. My dad's directions only went one way, but I we don't read into that. <laughs> I'm sure he wanted us to come back. <laughs> and we drove south. We went across the Piscataqua River that we had been looking at, uh, back into New Hampshire, across the Merrimack River, into, May into Massachusetts and the Connecticut and the Hudson. And finally, after seven hours, we came down a big green hill and over the Delaware River and back into Pennsylvania. And after this long, beautiful trip to the furthest place we could imagine, my mom and I had found our way back home. Thanks. A lobster roll a day can surely cure the wonderlust away. Ever thought you weren't quite alone? Maybe you had an uninvited guest. Worth Repeating returns October 17th with Spectre. These stories are sure to haunt, so grab tickets by visiting tpr.org backslash WR. Our next storyteller is Lynn Waiters. Lynn shares a story about a night she had to get out of her own room fast. When I was 15 years old, my mom and my stepdad rented a house at 711 East Palmetto Street. I loved that house. That house had a porch that went all the way across the front, and it had two front doors, or two doors on the front. <laughs> the main door led into the dining, living room and dining room with built-in china cabinets all carved and everything, and behind the dining room was the kitchen, and behind the kitchen was a breakfast nook where we ate most of our meals. Now the door to the left of the front door was a door that led into my mother's bedroom. Now if you went in that door, you could go all the way through her room toward the hall, into the bathroom, past my sister's room, and then at the very back was my bedroom. I loved it at the very back. If you stood in the door of my bedroom, facing, I guess, north at the time, you would look straight 
across into the kitchen. And to the left was the back door. And off the back door was probably a little utility porch or screened-in back porch where you kept the mop and bucket and stuff like that. Now, the screened-in back porch closed or locked with a little metal slide lock. The main door closed with a regular lock. So, I mean, no big deal. Now, this was summertime. And back then, when I was 15, no houses had central heat and air. If they had air conditioning, they had a window unit that was either in the living room or they may have a second in a bedroom where they could channel the air to go through the house. So most windows were large windows and they were kept open all the time unless it rained. At night, you would pull down your Venetian blinds and close them, or you'd pull down the window shade and you'd close that. Well, my bedroom at the back, my windows were toward the far end of the room, so I had the head of my bed toward the inside wall, the foot of the bed was in front of the windows, and I loved looking out the windows at night. So my windows were wide open. I closed the window shade down to where I could look out at the lights and smell the air and all of that. Now, my stepfather had been uh, uh, transferred overseas. So there's nobody in the house but us women or girls, a woman and some girls. So... Uh, uh, <laughs> so we're there, and it's time to go to bed. Summer night, it was time to go to bed. And I usually slept in a short nighty gown uh, or a long T-shirt. I did not wear pajamas because my grandmother Ellen, my father's mother, had taught me you don't wear pajamas as a young girl because it cuts off your circulation <laughs> while you sleep. So to this day, I don't wear pajamas. <laughs> okay. So it's time to go to bed. So everybody settles down and we go to bed. Sometime during the night, I'm one of these people who sleep in place. I never disturb one side of my bed. I can just get up, pull it up, and my bed's made. And I've always been that way. So I was asleep on my right side, facing the window. And sometime during the night, I decided, ah, it's time to turn over. So I kind of move my left leg, and when I move my left leg, I feel something at the foot of my bed. And I said, ah, oh, my sister done got up and come in bed with me. What, why? They have, they have their own bed. Why would they come and get in bed with me? And then something else came to mind. 
but there was also something up by my head. And I said, wait a minute. They can't, they're not, I'm the tallest person in the house. There's no way their feet can be down here and their head up here. So I decided, well, turn over. So I turned over and looked right into the eyes of a man with light brown eyes, head propped on his shoulder, and he's just looking. I didn't know what to think, but I knew I was getting out of that bed. Okay? So I just reached over, shoved him real hard, jumped over him, ran up the hall to my mom's room, and started calling her. And, and I said, somebody's in my room. Somebody's in my room. My mom's not afraid of much of anything, okay? And she said, girl, you just had a nightmare. Just go on and go back to sleep. Just a bad dream. I said, no, somebody was in my room. So I guess I was insistent enough that she got up. She came with me to the back to my room. We turned on the light, looked under the bed, looked in the closet, looked behind the door. We never thought to look toward the kitchen. There was nothing there. So she said, see, I told you, go on, go back to bed. You can sleep with one of your sisters or sleep in your own bed. So I decided to go sleep with my sisters, one of my sisters. So I went in their room, and then a couple of hours later, she had to get up and go to work. And all of a sudden, I heard this scream. I don't know if she screamed my name or she screamed what, but she screamed. And I jumped out of bed. I went to, toward the back door, and I said, what is it? She said, you weren't dreaming. You weren't dreaming. Somebody did break in the house. The back door had been propped open with a rock. The screened-in porch, the screen had been cut. The lock had been sl uh, slid open. And so she said, call the police. So I, I'm going to do like I was told. I'm 15. But I thought, what are we going to do? There's nobody there. But by the time it was time for me to start high school in September, she had bought a house, and we had moved away from 711 East Palmetto. Next time, check the whole house. Worth Repeating is now a book. Trinity University Press and TPR are proud to present Worth Repeating San Antonio Stories featuring 40 true narratives. Pick one up at the next live event, October 17th. Your support funds programs like these. Our last storyteller is Michael Suarez. Michael shares a story about a night in jail and how no one ever taught him how to make bail. In July of 2018, one morning, I woke up in jail. 
It was very concerning because I didn't remember falling asleep in jail. <laughs> I'm on a metal table in a room by myself, and as I'm waking up and coming to, a guard comes in bringing somebody else into the cell, and I ask her, hey, what's going on? And she goes, gives me finger guns, and says, you got to wait for the magistrate. He's not here yet. And I was like, okay, fun cop, <laughs> all right? The guy I'm with tells me, you need to make a phone call. He makes his phone call collect. He shows me how to do it. I've never been in jail before. Luckily, I had a tutorial with me. <laughs> I make my phone call. I call my wife, uh, who is not happy to hear this information. She loves surprises, not this kind. <laughs> Apparently, she'd been calling hospitals around the city because she thought I was dead. <laughs> Yeah, she went from terrified I was no longer alive to furious that I was. <laughs> uh, after about 10 minutes of an argument that I am paying by the minute for, we get called to the magistrate and I get handcuffed in a line of other people. To my left is a woman with no shoes uh, who looks probably as haggard as I do. To my right is a person uh, a short man, about 5'5", five five, who looks very clean cut. His t-shirt's tucked into his jeans. He looks great. All of us have had our belts and shoelaces taken away. Um, as we're taking us to the thing, uh, another officer says, go this way, <laughs> to me specifically. Gives me another set of finger guns. Like, all right. <laughs> we go to the magistrate. If you've ever been there, they tell you how much it costs to get out of jail, basically. They give you your, your bail amount. One to my left, they say, uh, drunken disorderly conduct, $2,000. Go to me. Driving under the influence, $3,000. Go to the person next to me, the clean cut guy. Murder! <laughs> Murder, $35,000. Which sounds like a deal when you put it that way. A Range Rover cost more than that. <laughs> I felt like I turned and was looking up at him, but I am looking down. <laughs> and then, uh, I've never had a game of duck, duck, murder before. But it, they take us back to our cells, and I go, what's next? And again, a different officer gives me finger guns and goes, you just gotta sit here and wait till you make bail. So I call my wife again. It's been about an hour, so I'm pretty sure she's over it by now. Uh, that is not the case. Another, another uh, information se uh, gathering session, gone through yelling. I find out she's gonna try to make bail. She asked me how to do it first. I was like, I'm the one in prison right now. <laughs> You're the one with the internet. How about we go on your side with that? I can just go by my memories of night court reruns. So <laughs> I am woefully unprepared. After another hour, uh, I give her another phone call. She goes, okay, we found a bail bondsman. We've paid your bail, now you just gotta wait. And then she also yells at me some more. <laughs> Which is fair, if ill-timed. <laughs> but uh, I keep asking what's going on. Every time I ask a guard what's happening, they always tell me, in a minute, just wait. Always a set of finger guns with their answer. Only to me, by the way. This is not a thing that's going out throughout the system. 
I am just waiting in uh, what I guess is called like the petty crime corral. It's like very crowded, but it's just people who have done things you get to go out that day. No one's killed anybody in this room. Uh, <laughs> no one's hit their wife. It's just very just small crime. Oh, it stole something. I ran into something. It's never. So everyone's just kind of standing around. We're all very hot. We're all very thirsty. There's a water fountain, but it's connected to the toilet. So no one is in line for that. And you just sit there and you wait. Finally, guard comes up. They made me wait longer because it's my first offense uh, for some reason. They're like, let's give them the whole experience the first time around. <laughs> they want to make sure that you don't have any other crimes throughout the country. They're like the Ted Bundy of Maine, you know what I mean? And it's like, oh, we got the California stab leader here. Like, they don't want you just to get away by accident. So they get me out. They go, let's go, chief. And then they hand you your belt. They hand you your shoelaces. You have to put them on and they send you on your way. And when you first get out into the sunlight, it felt like, oh my God, I'm free. I've been in there for 12 hours. <laughs> I felt like the Shawshank Redemption, oh, starting to try to new. But cut to two months later, I meet with my lawyer uh, for the first time after hiring him to talk about my case. He says, hey, sit down. It's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> he starts playing the video of the body cam footage of my arrest. <laughs> Which, if you've ever been arrested, I recommend checking it out. <laughs> <laughs> I get pulled over. The first thing they ask me is, have you been drinking? And I said, yeah, a couple. My lawyer stops the tape and he goes, what are you, an asshole? <laughs> Let's play again. Uh, they had me go through the motions. They had me do a sobriety test. And he goes like, yeah, you were too fat for that. You don't need to do that. I like, what? Why am I paying for abuse all the time? What is happening? <laughs> and this is the part I want you to see. Cape okay. okay, playing. Uh, they put me in handcuffs. I'm just standing there. One of the cops, I guess, has an issue with me driving under the influence, which I understand, all right? Like, how could you do that? Like, I was drinking, so I wasn't making the best decisions. I understand that. Well, this who do you think you are? And my reaction was to go, I'm Max Suarez, baby. <laughs> and that's my story. We're glad Michael got out in time. That's it for the Worth Repeating podcast. Do us a favor and give us a like, subscribe, or review us wherever you stream your podcast. Part two of the live event on the theme bail will be available to stream Tuesday, September 26. Support for Worth Repeating comes from the 8020 Foundation. Worth Repeating is a production of Texas Public Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm Tori Poole.